0: Hey, welcome back to Subversive Blondes. This has been an absolute marathon. We have completed Marilyn, and we're going to talk a little bit about her, well, maybe a lot, about the precursors and what led up to Marilyn, and a little bit about what happened afterwards. And uh, that will wrap up then our Subversive Blondes, and we'll be moving into something else, and we thought we would give you a nice episode about graphic novels and some recommendations.
1: The other thing that we want to say before we get started is that we checked our emails finally, and we actually got a couple of emails, so I want to shout out to those people who wrote to
0: us. And say, hi, Kim and Anthony. Thank you so much. It was lovely hearing from you. Um, Kim, that was such a sweet, sweet uh, email. We really enjoyed hearing from you. Thank you so much. And uh, we... I really would love to hear back from you uh, when you try Who's Body of uh, Lord Peter Whimsey novels. Even if you didn't like it, it's okay. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Yeah, and then Anthony suggested a topic for us to record on, and we'll
0: look into that and pick pick some movies. To look into Blake Edwards, who's a certainly a very famous and popular director and has done a lot of interesting films. And I'm sure we can uh, take a look at his career Thanks for writing, and for the rest of you who listen to the
1: podcast, shoot us an email and we'll respond on air. Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record
0: conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh, yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida.
1: (laughs) Hi, Foibles listeners. Welcome back to another episode. Today, we are going to be discussing another film star, a Jean
0: Harlow, who you may remember being mentioned in the Marilyn Monroe episodes. Right. And Jean Harlow was a huge uh, inspiration to Marilyn, well, particularly Marilyn's mother, who then made her an inspiration to Marilyn in terms of the blonde bombshell. And Jean was a huge, huge star in the early 1930s. She unfortunately had a very short life. She died when she was only uh, 26.
1: That's unbelievable. I'm 26.
0: I know, I know. Isn't it amazing? Very short life. And we'll get into that. And there were all kinds of rumors and salacious things. And in fact, it was a very straightforward issue of kidney failure for Jean. But... We'll talk about that later and I'll give you my take on it. The first thing I'm interested in is for all of you out there and for Zoe, who is, you know, the younger generation, has never really heard of or doesn't know who Gene Harlow is. What about you? I hadn't. I mean, I
1: I had probably heard the name before said by your lips. Uh, (laughs) Really? But I had no idea. As far as I know, none of my friends would know either.
0: And it's interesting, so maybe nobody will listen to this episode because it's like, who the hell is that? I would hope
1: that we're entertaining enough that they would be like,
0: well, let's find out who Jean Harlow is. Well, she's she is an important, though, evescent figure in the American cultural scene. And she did make impact because she hugely influenced Marilyn Monroe and other American actresses. And the idea of the sex symbol, which is very important going forward, although she herself, as a person, didn't leave, I think, a particular mark, if you guys don't remember her. I was, you know, young, child in the 60s and 70s, and and during that period, Jean Harlow was still, it was only 40 years after her death. So, you know, people who were my parents' generation knew her very well, and clearly she doesn't have the, the kind of iconic impact that Marilyn Monroe does, who is going to really continue to be a symbol going forward, even if she might not be remembered as much, much like Humphrey Bogart seems to, to, to be holding on, Elvis, um, various people like that who hang on and their image has come to mean something. And Harlow's career is very much about her image. Jean Harlow was a huge influence on Marilyn Monroe. Jean Harlow, in fact, was the sex symbol and the star of the early 1930s when Marilyn was a young girl and her mother, as we said in the previous episode, would constantly point to Jean Harlow and say, You could be her. You could be just like her and would try to basically groom Marilyn to to pick up these these glamorous Attitudes and looks and so forth, and the blondness. Now, Jean Harlow was known as the Platinum Blonde, and that's because she dyed her hair and made it Platinum Blonde. She was normally just kind of a light ash blonde, very normal and nice, but it was uh, dyed to be Platinum, and it became her hallmark to the point that it began to haunt her, and she became very irritated because she didn't want to be a hair actress. You know, basically, she just wanted to be there because of the hair on her head. And you'll notice that Marilyn basically. Her hair was practically platinum blonde, if not platinum blonde. I don't know the exact definition, but it was so white, as to I would yeah, say. She just
1: trended towards it over time, because her earlier roles, she doesn't have that, but then she really, like...
0: Yeah, gets into it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that uh, ha- that happened with Jean as well. She started, very, started out with her natural hair color, and then trended into the platinum, and then trended out of the platinum. But we will get into that. So I'm going to get into specifics, uh, begin about... Her life and Jean Harlow was actually born in 1911, and her name was Harlene Carpenter. But everybody called her the baby from the time she was born till the time she died. Not only her mother and her family, but all her friends and so forth would call her the baby, which is kind of sweet.
1: <laughs> it's kind of, it's either sweet or it would be irritating. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, well, it would, would depend. And uh, Harlene's mother, which is very interesting, uh, her maiden name was Jean Harlow. Ah, uh, that was her mother's maiden name. Interesting. And so her mother then became Jean Carpenter when she married, and the father's name was Montclair Carpenter. And Jean, I'll call her Harlene until she becomes Jean Harlow. So harleen was born. Her father's a dentist. And so they were pretty upper-middle class. She was very privileged. She had a pony, and she had, you know, she was a spoiled little girl, and uh, the only child and the apple of her parents' eye. Her father, though, was a workaholic and pretty distant. You know, men of that generation tended to be that way. It was actually kind of unusual for fathers to be at all involved. It would be actually noteworthy and strange for a father to be involved in the child-rearing of his kids at that time. The man was went out, and his job was to bring home the bacon, earn the money, and then he would come home, and then he was to be cosseted and uh, served and comforted and eased because he was out there working hard and the women stayed home. And, of course, the women, even with the beginnings of some of these time-saving appliances, such as vacuum cleaners and so forth, generally worked really hard. Now, in the carpenter house, they would have had servants. They did have servants, and so um, her mother didn't have to do too much. Her mother, on the other hand, was completely enmeshed with baby, and uh, just, she loved her, but she also never really let her individuate all throughout her life. They, they remained very close, that's the good part, but they also remained kind of enmeshed, which was not the good part. So what happened basically was that Harlene went to prep school. Um, she, you know, had it all. And she was very noted in prep school for being lively and playing pranks. And so she was just really kind of had a a fairly normal childhood. I mean, everybody has their dysfunctions, right? But she didn't have any huge abusive stories like Marilyn Monroe did. She was not abandoned. Um, She was well cared for. So she really had a pretty normal, reasonable uh, upbringing. But she was a very free spirit. And this is later comes into play, and in, with her image in the Hollywood scene and the role she played. But she, you know, remember. So by now, she it's about 1920, late night, mid 1920s. So it's still fairly stayed, especially in her class of society. And but at the same time, this new freedom was coming up for women. Women had gotten the vote. The term flapper was being applied to certain kinds of young women who would take to themselves the wild or fun behavior that men had always kept to themselves, such as driving fast cars, drinking, dancing, staying out light, having sex when they wanted to do, with whom they wanted to have sex. And so these kinds of things were, were in the air, in the zeitgeist, and certainly Jean was the kind of person with her free spirit and Because she was so petted, and I don't want to say spoiled, but people might consider it spoiling behavior, she came into the world with a feeling that the world was her oyster, that she could do and have what she wanted. She felt the kind of um, self-respect and um, enjoyment of herself, that she felt entitled to follow the lead of her impulses. And sometimes that was good, and sometimes it wasn't. So what happened was, when she was in prep school, she met this guy, his name was Charles Fremont McGrew II. And he came from a, also a very privileged and, and, and rich family, actually quite a rich family, richer than, than Harleen's. And he was nice looking, and he was fun, and you know, she was really attracted to him. And what happened was, is she ended up dropping out of school and marrying him at the age of 16. Wow. Now 16 was the first age she could marry and they did get parental consent. consent. I think it was kind of after the fact uh, my understanding is is that they pretty much had slept with each other and it was made pretty clear they'd slept with each other so the parents were like okay you know they've they've done the deed the the cow has been milked the horse is out of the barn we've got to let them get married. Make it right. Yeah exactly. And so they did, and she dropped out of school, and that was her last year of school. And uh, they moved to Hollywood. Now, Harleen had been to Hollywood before. She had gone to school in, in Hollywood because when she was younger, her parents had divorced, or, or separated. They ended up divorcing, but first they separated. And Harleen's mom, Jean Harlow, had always wanted to be in the, the, the pictures. She really saw herself as an actress, so she went. Now, she was in her mid-thirties, and in those days, that was considered over the hill for an actress. You know, by, by the time you were in your mid-30s, you were relegated to mom parts or old secretary parts, and Hollywood was one of the machines that loved the tender meat and would chew up those young women, and uh, And then when they got a little bit older, they'd spit them out. And just as an aside, kudos to all those great, great actresses, whether they were difficult people or not, such as Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, um, Olivia de Havilland, and a, a slew of others who took power and forced that issue, and all the actresses today, com- coming up to today, such as Susan Sarandon and others, who are pushing that envelope and going, no, this is BS, and you know, women of 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 are interesting and valuable and attractive and worthwhile. And that has changed.
1: Yeah. And not to mention, those those actresses you named, they were the ones that like brought some suits to Hollywood and sued for better well, contracts and things like that, yeah. right? Yeah,
0: yeah. Olivia de Havilland and Betty Davis in particular. Joan yeah. Crawford didn't, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there was uh, Marilyn Monroe as well, just looping it back, making connections, you see. Yeah. So essentially... Uh, her mother wanted to get in, and she never even got one one part, not even a role. She was very—I mean, she's an attractive woman, and you can see the resemblance between them. And she had she had the very blonde hair, and maybe that's where Harleen got the idea, because her mother had very very light hair. But the platinum blonde hair was not a thing at that time. Uh, in fact, a lot of the uh, a lot of the actresses were rather more dark-haired. In fact, so. Harleen's hanging out with her husband Uh, they have money so that neither one of them has to work necessarily and they were having a great old time hanging out in Hollywood where Harleen had lived before with her mom what I meant to say was Jean Harlow Harleen's mom separated from her husband they she moved to Hollywood with Harleen Harleen went to school there. Harleen was probably in in, uh, middle school, is what we would call it, and hung out there for a while. Mom could not make it as an actress. She never got a part, and eventually got discouraged, and they moved back to the homestead and hung out there, and that's where Jean went to prep school and so forth. Then at 16, Jean married McGrew, and they moved to Hollywood, and without Mom for a very short while, and then her mother... Um, followed and lived variously at various times in the house or in a house nearby depending on how much money Jean had because Jean basically supported her mother for the rest of her life and in fact her mother very interestingly took up with another man his name was Marino Bello and he was quite the just the picture of what uh, Americans would think of as a slimy foreign gigolo he was always well-dressed I don't think he was that good looking, but he was very presentable. He had a, a foreign flair with a little little pencil mustache and a you know very you know that kind of style that would have been back then, like in the movies, you see that. That's a type. That yeah. type, you know. And he he filled that type, European, though. yeah. And he's perfect for that type because he's exactly like that. And he was feckless. He had no visible source of income. He lived off Jean as well. And, in fact, he was always trying to make connections through her to get business deals going and these these business ideas he had but essentially he just pocket the money so he was a con man as well and he lived with her mother for many years until finally they, they broke up but um, he definitely took advantage of his uh, his access to to this who eventually became a movie star at this time she wasn't but she was a wife of a rich man And so they took care of them and and found them a place to live and a house and so forth. And they all lived there in Hollywood. So anyway, Harleen was having a great time. She uh, hung out with people and partied and so forth. And so the story goes that at one point she went with a pal of hers for an audition at a Hollywood studio. And and they were walking around in the studio and some studio executive sees her and goes up and starts chatting her up. He says, Oh, you know, are you an actress? And she says, No, I'm not an actress. I don't care about acting. I don't want to be an actress. And so he talked her into, you know, no, oh, you could be an actress, you could have a part. And so she very quickly got excited about this idea and she signed up and she went over to the office where you signed you can sign up to be an extra. So her first job was just sitting at a table in the background of a movie. There's actually if you go online you could probably see a picture of it. she's she
1: hanging out back there. Her blonde hair does stand out.
0: Yeah. And she, anyway, so her first part was of, as an ec- extra in this movie called Moran of the Marines in 1928, which would make her 17 or 18 years old when she uh, took this part. And She enjoyed it, and she made a little money, and then she got some more bit parts. And uh, then what happened is she got hooked up uh, and noticed by uh, Hal Roach, who was the head of the Hal Roach Studios. And if any of you know Laurel and Hardy and the keystone cops and so forth you're talking about Hal Roach's studio. So it was a low rent, you know, cheapies, quickies, funny, disposable fun. Of course, today, you know, Laurel and Hardy, which I assume is something quite people, famous, quite yeah. famous, they are lasting forever. So so it really ended up be, being more durable and timeless than anybody ever thought at the time. And Laurel and Hardy worked with Gene actually and she, there's one bit, there's one very famous bit where she plays a high society young lady and they are, one was a chauffeur and one's a doorman. And she comes to this fancy place and they open the door and she steps out and unbeknownst to her, the door closes on the, the train of her dress and she's walking very snootily, and the dress pulls off of her and she's just in her flimsies mm. and she isn't aware of it and she's walking and that's supposed to be really hilarious. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> but... It's interesting because if you look at the parallel with Marilyn, one of Marilyn's very first roles is with Groucho Marx, where she comes in. She's supposed to be she's supposed to be a vampy, sexy, you know, intentionally. And if you you can see that on YouTube if you're interested, and in I think it's terrible, especially the leering Groucho Marx performance. I've come to not care for some of his stuff very much. Um, I like his verbal humor, but not, not his leeringness. Anyway, so that's very similar to how Marilyn kind of got started with this sort of... I don't think it was meant to be all that sexy. I, it was just meant to Taking be... Taking shots at sexuality. Yeah, and, and she was cute. And she, yeah. It was meant to be cute, and her, her cute attractiveness mm-hmm. in this thing, and her un, unawareness of her... Uh, it's like a dream. Oh my God, I didn't really realize I didn't have any pants on. Oh my God, you know, that kind of thing. So anyway, she got along great there because unlike Marilyn, she didn't have the trauma and she didn't have the neurosis. And sure, she had her daddy issues and stuff because her father had been so neglectful and not paying attention to her. But she really basically was good fun, good companionship. She got apparently got along with people really well and they just had loads of fun. And she really loved working there but she was going to be offered some other opportunities and, you know, moving f- ahead in her career and so forth. Because during this time, what happened is as she's as she's moving forward in the Hal Roach studio, she's working all the time, so she's not available to her husband. Again, parallel to Marilyn, the husband expects the wife to be there for him. She's there to to go to events on his arm. She's there to be there for him, even though Jean wouldn't have had to clean the house or anything like that in this in this situation because they would have had servants. Um, nonetheless, she was not attentive to him anymore, and so they ended up splitting up. So she was only married to first husband from 1927 to 1929. So for about a year or so, she went on, and then they just couldn't make it anymore. So now she was in a situation where she needed to make money and make a living. She did get some money from her family, and they could have totally supported her, but they did not approve of her choice of breaking up with her husband, being an actress, not being a conventional woman. And we come up against this again and again with these artistic women and these women who want to make their way in the world. So this is where Harleen begins to step out of the, the norm and, and become someone who, I think it adds to her sex symbol appeal and her appeal to women because women can feel and see her on the screen as this woman who's, yeah, she may give lip service to the, the accepted, but she's doing, she's gonna do what she wants. And I think that was very attractive to women and ultimately to men as well, to many men anyway. So at this point in this period when Har, uh, Harlene gets her first job in 1928, that's when she transforms into Jean Harlow. What happens is when this guy you know, stops her and she goes over to the office to sign up, they say, what's your name? And she just gave her mother's maiden name, Jean Harlow. So what happened is when they called her the first time to get her job, they asked for Jean Harlow and she called her mother. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean me. <laughs> funny. Isn't that funny? She forgot. <laughs> yeah, she totally forgot. <laughs> so, and it was again, again, this is like Marilyn Monroe in that Marilyn took her mother's maiden name. Right.
1: There's an interesting, yeah, hereditary quality.
0: And I don't think she knew anything about Jean Harlow and how she got her name. I don't think that wasn't really a thing at the time. It just, it's very interesting. So anyway, Jean's going along. She's Jean now, not Harlene, And she ends up heading over and being pulled in by Howard Hughes. Now, Howard Hughes, for those of you who don't know, one time was almost probably the richest man in the world. He was an aviator, and he made a lot of his money in aviation, and uh, he was very eccentric. He did come from money as well, so it wasn't all just made by himself. He inherited wealth. Anyway, he was in Hollywood at this period, and he was notorious. He wanted to kind of do movies his way. He was a renegade. He also really kind of lacked taste and a lot of discernment, and he was very much a... um, a womanizer, and an eyeballer, and, uh, you know, he kind of like, ha, ha, you know, he, any woman, he was interested in getting in with every woman. He had an affair with, even with Catherine Hepburn. Wow. Uh, with, you know, uh, he ended up marrying a woman named Jean Jean Peters, who was an up-and-coming actor at the time. Very, very beautiful woman, just with everybody. Not Jean Harlow, though. He did not really kind of get her. I mean, he, he saw her as this sexy symbol, but he I don't think he, he was really that attracted to her at least from everything that I've read but she ended up by a fluke getting cast in this movie called Hell's Angels and in 1931 and it was kind of her break into what well, didn't make her a star but it was her breakout into standard A-list movies from the Hal Roach Studios and Hell's Angels is a really cool movie actually it was originally made as a silent film it's an aviation war film and this is where where Howard Hughes shone because he knew planes in and out. He knew all about flying, and he spent so much money; it just went it an insane amount of money.
1: Sorry, was he a director or?
0: Yeah, the good good point. He was one of three directors on Hell's Angels. Um, there was him. There was a guy named Edmund Golding, another guy named James Whale, and you most people know James Whale as the director of Frankenstein, mm. and. So the three of them directed, they weren't all credited as directors, but uh, my, it's my, uh, my impression that Hughes, although he had everything to do about the publicity machine and he was big about the look of women, and I'm going to tell you an aside story in a minute about that, about the look of the women and so forth, he was really the aviation expert here. And, and I will say that this film is really worth watching for those aviation scenes. In fact, a couple people died Doing the stunts, mm. they were very dangerous. What? Yeah, yeah, very dangerous. But they and they were all really real. So definitely, you want to During see. During filming? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Um, of course, I don't think it's not on screen. <laughs> the dead no people. kidding. Yeah.
1: It must have been a wild production to work on, though. Well, probably wanted to it. go to a funeral for Bobby <laughs> Joe. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, any any uh, any film that Howard Hughes made was a pretty wild situation. There's one later where. Uh, not Ros- I always get Jane Russell and Rosalind Russell mixed up because they're darn last names. But Jane Russell, who was the one who starred with Marilyn Monroe in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, mm. so anyway, she was in this film. Well, she was she was uh, making a breakout, and whether Howard Hughes discovered her or not. I mean, I think that's up in the air because everybody claims something different. But let's say he did discover her. She she had not really started her career yet. And she was a very, very gorgeous buxom blonde. I'm um, not a buxom woman, br- brunette. Sorry, I mean blonde. And... Howard Hughes, this is in 1943, so this is like 12 years after Gene Harlow and uh, Hell's Angels. But nonetheless, this is a Howard Hughes story, so I'll give you a sense of it. So she's gorgeous, very voluptuous figure, of course. Hughes totally was fascinated with her and her body. And this film, it's called The Outlaw, I thought it was a horrible movie. I, I watched it, it was horrible, the music is horrible, everything about it. But the buildup to this movie just had the censors frothing at the mouth because he had all these pictures of of Jane Russell, like reclining on a hay bale with her, you know, kind of decolletage and her and her skimply tight outfits, and it was just, oh, this is gonna break the code, and oh because you know the woman's sexuality, and 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 there was this whole thing about. Now, she's so buxom that Howard Hughes as the engineer had to design a new bra for her oh to, to hold her up. And that was like a big, big story and everything. And according to Jane Russell, he he the whatever he designed was so uncomfortable and terrible, she just used a regular bra. <laughs> But he actually designed it. Supposedly. And of course, remember back then, they didn't—they actually didn't have the... I mean, it is ridiculous, but they didn't have the bras we have today. Or even sure. that we had when I was young. They didn't have the underwires. They didn't have the, the way the cups hold up. Mm. Around that time, all they had was like a band that just kind of went across your breasts. Mm. So they didn't have cups and things like that. Or if they... And anything they had was very flimsy. So it, it makes sense that, that women did need better underclothing. But of course... It's more like Hughes. I think so Hughes could like look at breasts, frankly.
1: Probably. <laughs> he was
0: very, very childish and un, and immature in his relation, sexual relationships and his attitude toward women. It was almost like he was 12. Okay, I'm, I'm coming back to the main thread here of, of Jean Harlow. Okay, so
1: she's working with him on this movie, Hells Angels. Thank
0: you for reminding me of that. Yeah. So, uh, and as I said, there are these two other directors who direct basically the actors and the drama and, and so forth. And one of them, James Whale was a nightmare. He was horrible to Jean. He berated her in front of everybody. He insulted her acting. He insulted her intelligence. I mean, he really was super abusive to her. Mm. And she bore the marks of that for quite a long time after that, where she was very, very insecure, very scared, very questioned her own ability and her own uh, talent if she had any at all, because she knew she wasn't an actor. She knew she didn't have any technique. She didn't have any acting technique. But the thing is, that was what was charming about her. And that's what I like about her. And when she started acting, she was not that good of an actress. So she just should have stayed herself. And so as I'm talking about this, I'm seeing that probably the best way for me to give you this information and for us to talk about it together is for me to outline Jean's life and then we can talk about the films and the impact in this, the social currency. And the reason I'm, I'm saying that is because unlike, say, Marlene Dietrich or Errol Flynn or um, Marilyn, the films and the life don't intertwine that much. Uh, she's, she's interesting. I think it's worth knowing. They intertwine in that the persona that she presents on film is very much like her own personality. But that's pretty much it. Uh, so she had an interesting life, so we'll we'll go over that briefly, and then we'll go over the films. I'm going to do that a little differently. And full disclosure, gang, I uh, tried something a little different this time. We tried something different in that uh, because Zoe doesn't have as much viewing time as I do, we decided to just kind of pick out some of the highlight films. And I've seen a lot of her films, so I was felt like I was able to do that. Uh, but I missed an important one, and uh, from now on, I'm going to do what I usually do, which is I'm going to watch every single film film even if there are 45 or 50, I just I have to do it in order to give you the best analysis possible. I think we're gonna, we're gonna have a great podcast and a great analysis, but...
1: For the fluency of information. Yeah,
0: and for my, my oh, sense of cool. really riding the current of their life and their work, uh, I, I, get, I get much better sense of what's going on when I see everything that they've done. So anyway, that's, that's our full disclosure. So going on with, with Jean's life, she does have this horrible experience initially, but luckily things get a lot better. And in the end of 1931, that's when MGM bought out her contract and brought her over there. And again, they were paying her peanuts on the dollars that she was earning for them, but it was really good money for the depression. She was making very good money. And you know, so she was making a few hundred dollars a week and it was supposed to go up a certain amount every year. And it was one of those seven year contracts. So basically you're an indentured servant for seven years. And the way they worked was, if for some reason you couldn't work or didn't work on a film they assigned to you, then they uh, could uh, suspend your contract, and the time that you were not working would be put at the end of your contract. So seven years would kind of keep... Bumped back. And what's interesting about that is that the seven-year number... I always thought it was kind of interesting, because the seven-year number is the same number of years that often indentured servants who came over from Europe had to work. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, is not that interesting?
1: Yeah, I wonder if that how that convention happened and if it just kind of carried through.
0: I think that they thought usually what they would do is they would take someone at the beginning of this and they would pay them what was very a very good sum for somebody starting out like $150 a week, which is, you know, when somebody made, you know, usually made $20 a week or something. I don't know what it was, $25 a week in a regular job, and they were making very good money for them, and they would train them and up and they would give them voice lessons and acting lessons and and then they would build them up and they'd give them little parts and they would try to make them into a star. And so I think what the way they felt about it is we're paying you more than you're worth and we're putting all this money into training you. And so when we make the, the millions of dollars off of you later, well, that's just the return on our investment and you shouldn't be asking us for more money. So yeah, so they might get pay raises up to $750 a week. Again, a lot of money at the time. But nowhere near what these people are making for the studios. And so they rebelled. Because really all the advantage was on the side of the studio. Basically, if you went gambling, they were the house. Yeah. You know? And you're always going to lose to the house. So what happened was, Jean moves over to MGM. And in 1931, which is pretty amazing, she made, um, my gosh, she made so many films. She made five films. No, six films, I'm sorry, in one year. Six films in one year. I mean, that's what they would do again. That's what the system, they grind you out. You never got time off. Because even if you had a day off, that day off was the day you had reporters come and you did interviews or you had photographs taken and things wow. like that. So they, they, you, they didn't get it's time rough. off. Or if you're going to get a vacation for two weeks to go somewhere, they would uh, set up publicity appearances and things for your vacation. Riddle. So it was actually, it was, actually pre- it was gla- You know, it had the glamour, but the, you know, it was pretty brutal too. I agree with you on that. So she did a number, after um, after she did Hell's Angels, she did a number, like five different films, or a few different films that were not interesting or notable. Uh, and so the next really interesting film she was in was The Public Enemy. And a lot of people know this. It stars James Cagney as the public enemy, the t- titular role, and he's a gangster. And he's fantastic in it. You saw it. Yeah. What did you think?
1: It tells the story of gangsters rise during prohibition stealing and selling illegal alcohol and stuff uh, and he's classic in it he's so snappy he's he is like the classic hollywood like gangster he's like, rough and gangster. rat-a-tat yeah, yeah rough
0: and rat-a-tat-tat i mean that yeah. guy can deliver lines like a, a staccato bullets just coming out of the gun right yeah totally
1: and he's got that pale face that you just can't quite trust and yeah and stuff but he also she she plays his mistress or his wife
0: mistress well basically he meets uh he sees her on the street and gives her the come on, and she gives him the come on. She gets in his car and drives off, and they basically... And, and the, the movie is just really cagey about whether they're having a sexual affair. It's like, come on, he's a gangster. You know, come on. But she, in this role, is being crafted as just one-note, sultry, sexy, hip-swaying, eye-winking little sex pot. I thought it was interesting. I, I mean, I thought she was interesting to watch and interesting to look at. The, the role is pretty dumb. But the movie is to be recommended, I think.
1: It definitely feels like a salient piece of cinema history. Oh, it
0: totally is. And it's entertaining. It's, the James Cagney part is really entertaining. And this is the has the very, very famous scene that you've probably seen where James Cagney shoves a grapefruit in May Clark's face at the breakfast table. It's very famous. It's very good.
1: He also walks staggers dramatically in the pouring rain.
0: And he goes, you know. he goes, he goes I ain't so tough. Yeah, it's that's awesome. <laughs> so, that movie isn't great for Jean Harlow, but she does play, they're beginning to establish her sex goddess role and her, her senses as, as an icon. And, um, very interestingly, is you know hanging out in Hollywood, and as she moves into 1932, uh, after she begins to make a little bit of a mark, she has found a a mentor in a man named Paul Byrne, B-E-R-N, and Paul Byrne is uh, 22 years older than she is, and he, like Marilyn Monroe, who also had a mentor and someone who promoted her career from within. Marilyn's was an agent. In this case, uh, Paul Byrne was a producer at MGM. He's the one who got them to buy her contract. Mm. He's the one who's pushing her for roles and so forth. A sponsor. Yeah, absolutely. They end up getting married in 1932. And this is the mark of the way that we see Jean uh, going forward in the future, that she's always attracted to men who are much older, men who will teach her men who will guide her, men who will be her father figure. And that tends not to work out very well for a number of reasons. And her marriage to Byrne was was pretty difficult. And part of it was she was not home a lot because she was sleeping over her mom's house, which I'm all for. (laughs) (laughs) The tension there, yeah. But there was tension because she was not, you know, she was not, I think, appropriately attentive to her marriage. There have been a lot of stories about, oh, Paul Byrne had underdeveloped testes. Paul Byrne was impotent. Paul Byrne was this and that, and was causing Mm. problems in their marriage. But there's no evidence for that. Basically, the difficulty, I think, came mostly with the fact that Paul Byrne already had a wife. Oops. He married her. So they get married. Uh, Paul Byrne, like I said, is her mentor and pushing her through in Hollywood. So in 1932, her career, and we will talk about this, goes this is when the year goes skyrocketing to the heights, where she's going to be the number one star in, in Hollywood during this year. At the same time, her personal life just goes downhill. This is quite a story. Oh, it's an it's, it's amazing story. So basically, Paul Byrne had had a, a woman that he lived with in New York and so forth for many years. And they held themselves out as husband and wife, basically. And in a lot of states, there is a thing called common law marriage. And common law marriage is when you you don't have a ceremony, you don't get a license, and all this, but you live together as husband and wife. The man supports the woman in those days.
1: And it just becomes legal at some point. Yeah, and they
0: they you know the the woman is Mrs. Paul Byrne, you yes. know, and, and everybody acknowledges and sees that, and the man is you know, in it with a woman and so forth. And that's a real marriage. I Mm -hmm. mean, that's just as much a marriage as going to a judge and and getting married. So basically, Paul Byrne committed bigamy when he married Jean. Mm. Now, he didn't tell Jean about this woman. So this common-law wife of Paul Byrne's, Dorothy Millette, or I don't know if the double L is French or not, but I'll just call her Millette. Anyway, she was a lovely woman, but she was not emotionally stable. And she had a breakdown and possibly had mental illness. Anyway, Paul Byrne... Sorry, was she in L.A. or...? No, no, sorry. She was back east. She was, okay. I think, in the New York area. And Paul Byrne moved to Hollywood and left her. But he supported her, as a husband should, in those days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she had no money. He just didn't want to be with her anymore. And I think the, the feeling I get is that he did love her. So essentially, he she was in a sanatorium, and he paid for her to be able to stay there and... He came out, and he was doing his life in Hollywood, and he and Jean got together for whatever reasons. I, I know that she was very attracted to him, To him, I think as a daddy, you know? And he just couldn't be that. And her mother was there, and she... And it's not her... I don't think her mother was intentionally interfering, but they had a certain relationship, she and her mother, and that was Jean's choice to go over and hang out at her mom's mm-hmm. more than than spend time with her husband. So essentially... Things were not going that great. Then something even worse happens. Dorothy Millette leaves the sanitarium. I wouldn't say she escaped because I don't think she was committed there, but she left, and she ended up traveling out to Hollywood. Shows up. And shows up. Then we the timing of it isn't exact, but three months after Paul Byrne married Jean Harlow, he committed suicide by shooting himself in the head. So what happens is the one of the servants comes in. Jean Harlow is spending the night at her parents. The servant comes in and finds Paul Byrne naked, dead, lying on the floor with a gunshot wound to his head and a gun.
1: Ooh, naked? So, I didn't hear that detail. Yes.
0: And so what happens is is the first thing he does always that they did is he calls the studio. And the studio is like, I don't know, like the Catholic church or a corporation, <laughs> you know, it's like we're an institution. And when something happens, we get in there and we, we spin it. And of course, like the mafia, mm-hmm. they paid off the police and they had the police and the government in their pocket because they were so rich. So a lot of this stuff that happened in Hollywood, these scandals, these crimes and so forth were covered up by mm-hmm. the studio because the, the people who did them, the stars were moneymakers and so they wanted to make sure they kept making money and hmm. people didn't find out. So Louis B. Mayer himself, who was the head of MGM, came down and went in the room. And there was a note that Paul Barron had left. And whether it's a suicide note or not, nobody knows. And Louis B. Mayer pocketed it because of what it said. Everything they thought of was, we have to protect Jean Harlow. She's the number one star in the world. She's making us millions of dollars. Was and she
1: the number one star in the world?
0: I think she was wow. at that point amazing yeah if not the number one star the number one female star right for sure so uh and then the police come and it just becomes a huge muddle so it's determined that paul byrne committed suicide but at the inquest now there are so many rumors i'll just tell you what i think from what i've read and i have not gone back to the original papers i've not taken my spyglass and gone over the ground and looked at the clues this is just what i think and i think I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> usually are. Well, they, they know that a woman, that, that at one point, Jean Harlow apparently left the house crying that night. They also know that a woman, not Jean Harlow, came to the house. They found a wet bathing suit. They found two glasses. And then, well, let me tell you a little bit about more Paul Byrne, and then I'll tell you what the aftermath of it. And, and I think it will confirm my statement. Now, Paul Byrne, in my opinion, felt guilty as hell toward both women. Didn't know what to do. He didn't want his career ruined. And he didn't want Jean Harlow's career ruined. Because even though Jean didn't know anything about this and was in scent of everything, it would ruin her career just because that's the way people worked in those days, right? Yeah, It would have tainted her. So essentially, I think he committed suicide because he was not as not a str- strong emotionally. This whole thing... I mean, men in those days jumped out of windows because the stock market crashed, right? So this is... Something analogous to that is how I see it. All that
1: material responsibility becomes your worth, and it's a lot of pressure.
0: Right, and you're ruined. I mean, you are ruined. And, you know, can you think of some things that happen to people on Twitter today? You know, you can imagine. So, essentially, um, the yarn the studio spun is that, oh, well... He killed himself because he was impotent and he could not consummate his relationship with Jean Harlow. He didn't say anything about the first wife. And that, oh, well, he was probably gay and he just, you know, and he he had underdeveloped genitals and so he was impotent. And then he killed himself because he was impotent. And so there was all this story stuff going on. And honestly, you know, who knows, there might have been some kind of dysfunction, but honestly, I think he killed himself out of guilt and the fact that this woman has shown up. Who knows what she told him? But this was going to come out. He and his and Jean were going to be ruined. And I think he... Obviously, he cared for her. He, he wouldn't have been trying to um, promote her career so vigorously and so forth and marry her if he didn't at least care for her, you mm-hmm. know? And I think he cared for Dorothy and he felt bad because he'd been taking care of her. He had not abandoned her mm-hmm. in terms of financially and making sure she was okay. So, and the thing that, that I believe supports my theory was that Dorothy then she left she had had a hotel room in town and they couldn't find her ultimately they found her and she had gone on one of the ferries and jumped off and committed suicide right double suicide double suicide so now some people believe that in fact he was murdered maybe by the studios maybe by Dorothy Millett so they want to get and the reason this this happened is that a, a chauffeur who ended up Uh, They discovered, had stolen some things from the house or embezzled from the family. Then said, oh, well, you know, there was, this is murder. But there was no evidence. There's no evidence at all that there was a murder involved here.
1: I'm sorry. The chauffeur was also stealing and then (laughs) (laughs) deciding. I know. I mean. a tangled
0: web. (laughs) Craziness, right? And so um, basically, Gene is innocent. That's the, that's the upshot of the story. And the studio started weaving all these things because somehow they, they felt that they needed to hide the fact that Paul Byrne was a bigamist and that Jean was the second wife who was not really a wife. She was a bigamist wife. Somehow they thought that that would, that would dull her or stain her in some way. So somehow she would be upheld if her husband was impotent.
1: I know that's a very strange. I don't understand the logic, logic of it. right? Yeah. Like, isn't it a nice, heart-wrenching story that, like, oh my god, her she innocence, li- she was lied to,
0: and well, maybe, and stuff. maybe, maybe they were afraid. Oh, people won't believe it and think she knew or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't understand their logic at all. But then that's me. So that's what happened. It's just sad. This quiet, introspective, supportive man, who he just couldn't. He just cracked. And it was three months after they got married. Can you imagine that? I can't, no. It the horror. And so what happened was then Jean fell into an affair with a, a boxer named Max Baer, B-A-E-R. I don't know if you've ever hmm. heard of him. He actually had a son who became an actor, Max Baer Jr., who was <laughs> on uh, the uh, Beverly Hillbillies in on TV when I was a kid, as an aside. But anyway, Max Baer was charming. He was deadly in the ring, but in person he was charming and kind of artistic and very an actor who portrayed him and who he said, he was just as light as a soap bubble. Huh. I thought that was a very good, you know, thing for him. And, and so she got enmeshed with him, and I think on the rebound. And the, when Max Baer's wife then threatened mm-hmm. to uh, bring a divorce action and name Gene Harlow, the studio steps in as they do. And Gene Harlow had had a really great friend in a guy named Harold Rawson. And Harold Rawson was a cameraman. He ended up doing amazing work throughout his career later like in Spartacus and Mm. you know award-winning work he's very very famous for his camera as as a cinematographer but at this point you know he's well known and and respected and she had a friend in him some sources say the studio pushed her to get married so that this scandal with Max Baer wouldn't come out I don't know I don't know if I believe that because she was good friends with Rawson very good friends with him and they were they were quite tight and he was 17 years older than her. That fits the pattern, and if you look at him, he looks like Paul Byrne. Does he? And they look like her dad.
1: (laughs) They look kind of like big, foreheaded, Receding
0: um, hair. dark. Dark.
1: A little mustachial thing, kind kind of, I don't know, how would you characterize that? It's not like nerdy, exactly, It's kind of like,
0: it's kind of like 30s dad. Yeah. Like, he's very much a 30s dad. Her dad
1: is better looking than all the men she marries though.
0: He is. He totally is, yeah. isn't he? He's much better looking but scholarly. But he's got the receding hairline, he's got the mustache, he's got the kind of white kind of square face. Yeah. You know? And he was a dentist and he was an in- intelligent and I think and so you know she she keeps reaching for these men. I really think um <laughs> so I really think that that it was more of a rebounded match. Now, she might have been shoved into it more quickly or shoved into it by the studio. Certainly, they might have tried to bring pressure to bear. But she ended up marrying um, Harold Rossin in 1933, which is, again, the second year of her great stardom. He was a camera, like I said, 17 years older, and they just eloped mm. and got married. And they they stayed together for that year. But again, her real relationship was with her mother. I, I mean, I think let's not be too judgy about that, because maybe, you know... People want to really cast her mother as this money-grubbing succubus, but that might not be the case. It might just be that it was really the nurturing, most accepting, because she was totally accepted by and loved by her mother for who she was. Mm-hmm. You know? So that it just might have been a very positive relationship where she really got nourishment, and she couldn't seem to choose a man who could give that to her. Yeah, And that might be it, because Harold Rossin, he was very accomplished in his role and very rewarded, but she was a megastar for those days and so the competition so there's definitely Mm -hmm. a a sense of competitiveness and he began to denigrate her Mm. and tear her down and kind of insult her it's sad I know it's very sad and then they ended up getting divorced within a year so that that doesn't work so I don't take this as a sense that that her quick turnarounds with husbands was because necessarily that she was difficult to live with but maybe perhaps it was difficult for men It was difficult for men at that time to live with a woman who is the alpha in the relationship.
1: Yeah, in multiple senses. Yeah, exactly. Breadwinning.
0: Breadwinning, more famous, dynamic personality. Deciding
1: what to do with her time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They they wanted the what I was talking to with Zoe earlier today about the angel in the house. They wanted the woman who is going to be the supportive helpmeet to the man to boost him up, Mm -hmm. and rather than an equal or even someone who is the one you should be boosting up, because that's her, their role. That's what happened with, with Harold Rawson, and so now we are at the kind of at the end of really her life-interesting aspects until she actually becomes ill and gets ready to die. So I'm going to shift over to her filmography, because now it's really the films that are going to be particularly interesting. It's where she really lives. It's where she really thrives. Wait, and, you
1: should tell the story about the chauffeur first.
0: Okay, and, and here's just an interesting anecdote from her life. I mean, apropos of nothing, it doesn't, it doesn't have no thematic interest, but it's weird. Yeah. So apparently she had this chauffeur, and the chauffeur was sent to the airport to pick someone up. And on the way, got out of the car, had an altercation with someone, and and grabbed one of the innocent bystanders and forced them to get into the car along with the person that he had the altercation with and then drove off and then was chased by the police and ended up getting shot. What?
1: Yeah. Just just on some afternoon
0: that he was supposed to it's take Hollywood, man. Isn't that weird?
1: <laughs> yeah. I feel like there could be a whole movie about that where perifer- only peripherally is the star, yeah. is Gene kind Harlow. Kind of the
0: Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of Hollywood, yeah. <laughs> of Gene Harlow's story, right?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, you don't remember that? Okay, yeah, she's
1: so, just bad luck with chauffeurs, I guess. Yeah, yeah, really,
0: <laughs> definitely. And then um, she also uh, another interesting thing that happened before we really dive into her filmography. As as she was going along, after she had was making just millions of dollars, she was doing so many films. Uh, like I said, she did six films in 1931, and then she did. Uh, four films in 19... Thir- no, five films in 1932. And then she did three films in 1933, and they're all making money, pretty much. But she found that this is typical of all actresses, they seem to say, is that they, they were getting typecast, they were getting shoved into movies that they didn't think were a good quality. In other words, to get these these huge numbers of movies going, not all of them were going to be well thought out and good and necessarily offer material to the actor that would enhance their... Acting ability or their ability to show themselves as really talented or stretch themselves. And that's what Harlow began to feel. And also the fact that they were making so much money off of her. And yeah, she, she said she was making a very good amount of money. By this time, she was making about $1,200 a week, which even today would be good money. But consider, you Nowhere know... Nowhere near yeah, yeah,
1: the what they the profit they were making off of her labor. Off of yeah. her
0: specifically, because it wasn't like people were going to the movies to see the director, you know, or the cinematographer. They were going to see her. She was the draw. And so... Um, So she basically went on strike and then they tried to bring in that clause in the contract where they suspended her and there was a standoff and basically I think Harlow did not care enough about being a star that it ended up being good for her because Hollywood couldn't quite pressure her so much but what's interesting is is that mario bello her stepfather he keeps coming into the studio time after time before now and later after this where he goes in and he's demanding things on her behalf and he's representing her and he ends up stirring the pot and making trouble and actually making it harder for them to settle and, of course, they, uh, the studios don't want to settle. So they do end up uh, throwing her a few crumbs. As she gets a raise and she gets a little bit of autonomy. But really, she she doesn't get that much. She still stays under the studio's thumb, uh, which is one of the interesting things is because Marlene Dietrich tended to get, for the most part, she had some dumb films, but pretty good roles and pretty good films. But she wasn't under a seven-year contract. She had short-term contracts. mm because she came over already, not really totally established, but she was a name. She was known, and she had she was friends with some big directors, and right? Stuff, exactly. Right? So she didn't have to sign that contract. So people who had more freedom ended up usually having a better, more interesting career. Because basically, this was a churn em out situation. It's like uh, you know, just churn out these films, do five, six, seven movies a year. Because while they're hot, strike while the iron's hot. We're not we're not building for longevity. We're building for the sh- the uh, bottom line, right? So, basically, when she came back, then they kind of put her in some substandard films, I think, just to show her mm. that you know they were they were in charge of the situation yeah yes. punishment yeah, kind of yeah, exactly, which is dumb because but again, that's ego, that's the the ego driven not they weren't about business. If they had been, they would have seen further into the future and taken care of their product, if you want to call it that. but during these years, during these golden years, she did some really amazing movies. And I So, uh, in her early days, um, when Jean was working with Hal Roach, and she was still sort of the young, ingenue, unknown, and still married to her first husband, she met up with a photographer, and again, we have another parallel with Marilyn Monroe. She met up with this photographer, and he wanted to do some photographs of her au natural. And these were not like Marilyn Four Calendar or anything like that, they weren't particular commercial, commercial. Mm. it was more art photos. But she was, you can see in the photos, she's completely naked. Now, she does have like a little diaphanous scarf sort of draped down her front, and her arms are up in the attitude, sort of one of those Art Deco women and, uh, on lamps and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. and, uh, you know, the very softly lit and, you know, very art, arty pieces. So she did a whole series of these while she, and she was still married. Her husband wasn't, like, too happy about that. <laughs> And so later on in the, when we talk about her heyday and she becomes very famous, these photographs surface, not as trumpingly as they did with Marilyn. It's just, they they kind of resurface and Jean just denied they existed. Nope, never heard of it. They're just making it up. It's not true. That's funny. (laughs) And then it went away. Kind of blew over. (laughs) Yeah, and then it blew over. So, but again, another interesting parallel there to, to Marilyn. And one of the hazards that Jean encountered, and I didn't realize this was a thing, but it certainly makes sense, when she first started in her film career, was, they called them Klieg eyes. K-L-I-E-G. Because they're Klieg lights, is what they used to light the actors. And they were these gigantic, super bright lights. And the the reason for them is is that film stock was not as sensitive as it was later developed to be. So it took a lot of light to be able to imprint the image on the film stock, mm-hmm. and um, so think about it like back in the old days when they first developed cameras, the film stock uh, or the plates was not very sensitive, so people would have to sit there for about you know a minute or two or three and just stay still so that their image could get onto the film well that's the way it was in early film it was obviously they didn't have to hold it to implant it but they needed a lot of light that's how they countered that and the lights were super bright and basically they'd get retinal burns mm. like looking at the sun it was like looking yeah. at the sun because they would have to look out and look into the camera and there's this gigantic light Oof. shining right in their eyes yeah so they they often would have uh, the actors would have problems with this, and, and Jean ran into that problem so she had to get some
1: you recover from it, you just like...
0: Yeah, it, it, I think I think it ultimately damages your vision, but yeah, you can recover if you stay away from it for a while, apparently. Huh. Because I didn't hear that there was massive amounts of people going blind, uh, massive amounts of actors going blind. Yeah, you would have kind of heard about that. You would have heard, heard about that, yeah.
1: Issue.
0: yeah. Let's go back to 1931, which we were talking about, where right after Hell's Angels, she made, like I said, The Public Enemy with James Cagney. We talked about that. And then she made a couple more films that... We haven't seen and are not remarkable in any way. And then at the end of 1931 release was a, a film called Platinum Blonde. As we said, at this point, her hair is platinum blonde, and she's getting, she's known for that. And so this is the first film where MGM, they've been grooming her and getting her ready. So they made this film. It defines her. It, def- it gives her her nickname. It gives her mm. her moniker, if you will. And the last film, I believe, that she's in where she has her regular eyebrows. Should we talk about the eyebrows here? Do you think it should be at this point? Because we're talking about her look, and there's that blonde, that platinum blonde look that women never didn't do that before. And she made it, all of a sudden, women all over the place are creating, doing platinum blonde. All kinds of actresses, famous actresses, are imitating the platinum blonde look. Even Greta Garbo, who is notoriously liked her comfort, and she, she really kind of almost like didn't seem to care sometimes they actually got her to wear a platinum blonde wig in a in a roll. <laughs> so it was it was something that it was a big thing.
1: Interesting. So she started that.
0: Around. The other thing was the eyebrows. Now I don't know that she started the eyebrows, as a lot of people say that she did, but I don't think she did. I think that she popularized them. And the fact is is that she has kind of a little bit deep set eyes and she's got low eyebrows, eyebrows mm-hmm. that go down to her, her eyes and they thought well that wasn't attractive apparently i think she looks adorable i don't think they needed to mess with her eyebrows no
1: i mean they don't look great
0: I, anyway I think, <laughs> I think they can look horrible they look, go from from eh, not okay to horrible and okay do you want to describe the eyebrows or shall i the the drawn on eyebrows she does don't stand out very much they're really pale still well that's the problem with them is is that yeah. basically they would what they would do and Marlena Dietrich did this too she yeah and I was hers say, could, she
1: painted them on and they it, went higher but they were never horrible
0: well I don't know I thought there were a couple where they were really horrible but <laughs> she but only a couple then then she kind of moderated them but uh, I don't know I think Jean just didn't have she just let people draw her eyebrows on. I don't think she had the, the control that Marlena did. But they would shav- actually shave the woman's eyebrows, and then they would take a pencil and they draw a really thin, just a a tiny, thin little arc way up on their forehead to make them look like they had these really high-arched eyebrows. So go online and look at this if you can. I think what's particularly bad for Jean is that her brow ridge is quite pronounced. Mm-hmm. So when they shave off her eyebrows, you can still see where they're supposed to be. yeah. And then they draw on this big arch, and they, they're they horrible. The ones where she looks better are either her natural eyebrows. Later on, it's, they seem to tamp it down a little bit. The arch came down. The line got a tiny bit thicker, so it looked a little bit more natural. But I have to say, it was Bad, awful. Poor choice. Yeah, and they thought that made her more attractive. I don't understand that. So, platinum blonde, um, the public enemy, Hell's Angel, she had her normal eyebrows, and... Her next major film, red redheaded woman that she's in, she her eyebrows have transmuted, I believe, too, and they just kind of get higher as we go, and just oh, they're awful. Okay, uh, that's that's enough. That's my diatribe on the eyebrows. Ugh. So anyway, in the in the film Platinum Blonde, highly recommended, is a um, film directed by Frank Capra, who we all know as the a great Hollywood director who did uh, Mr. Smith went Goes to Washington and uh, It's a Wonderful Life mm-hmm. and those kinds of films he, he directed this and so it's very light it's got the it's really just got that romantic comedy screwball comedy wit about it and it stars Jean, actually Jean's kind of the uh, not e- really the second lead in it mm-hmm. but she's the most memorable one. The actual female star is Loretta Young who um, I don't know if if people would know her today, but she was very, very beautiful, brunette, a working girl in this film. But she was loyal. She was loved the man maternal with with, with, a, with adoring eyes and so yeah. forth. And so, I mean, she's very lovely and everything. And one thing that I didn't haven't mentioned yet because we haven't hit it yet, but I'm going to. I'll just skip up. Is that Jean Harlow was just BFFs with Clark Gable. They were just. They'll, they'll be together in, in, um, in movies going forward, and they did several movies together. They just were great, great friends. No sexual relationship, just super good friends. They, uh, she'd bring out the Victrola between scenes in movies, and they'd dance, and they'd play games, and they'd do pranks on people, and they didn't like people. They were mean to them together <laughs> and stuff like that. But they were just... And, and Clark Gable was probably one of the key factors in healing her... Um, distress and pain over the way she was treated by James Whale, the way she was abused mm-hmm. by him. He, Clark Gable, is really the one who boosted her confidence because by this time he was uh, a hot, old-handed Hollywood. He was knew his way around, and he really supported her. And I think that I think they had just a lovely relationship.
1: That's sweet. They're really nice together on screen.
0: Yeah. Okay, the reason I told you that story out of order is because Loretta Young had an affair with Clark Gable around this time. Oh, okay. An illicit affair. Gable was married to somebody else, and she was probably married to somebody else. This is the funny story. (laughs) Digressing a lot. Sorry, guys. But what happened is she has a child by Clark Gable now, Loretta Young was a devout Catholic, and she felt guilty and mortal sinny and everything about having this affair, right? So she has this child. She never tells the child or anybody that until the child grows up that didn't really know that she was the child of Clark Gable. But Clark Gable, if you look at his early films, I think he had surgery to correct this, his ears stick out. Yeah. Right? And this little girl, her ears stuck out just like that.
1: That's funny. And so
0: Loretta Young would always have a little bonnet. Like, we, like I had a bonnet like this when I was little. It's a little bonnet that comes down over your ears and ties under the chin. Yeah. I had one of those when I was a kid. And so she'd always put her child... Whenever they would go out, she'd always put this bonnet on this child's face. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? So no one could see it. Yeah,
1: well. and, 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 and,
0: and And start to gossip that this was a child of Clark Gable, right? Because, of course, there's Everyone, there's always gossip going around. Probably you know, people knew on the sly what was happening. So anyway, sorry. Loretta Young is the star of this movie. She had an affair with Clark Gable, who was BFFs with Gene with Harlow. That's that's the, the, the little cycle going on there. Right. Because they were all with the same studio. So you'll see the same people in, like Gene Harlow's movies, you'll see mm-hmm. the same people over and over and over again like Clark Gable, because he was also on contract there. And you'll see... Um, Myrna Loy and Rosalind Russell over and over and over in these movies because they were all under contract so they just keep cycling them through. Una Miracle is another one. Okay I'll stop now. So anyway this film is a delight. Jean Harlow plays I think one of the few times she plays an upper class which is really where she comes from an upper class rich girl who wrote some ill-advised letters to this man, and the uh, male lead in this film, his name is Robert Williams, gets a hold of him, and they end up meeting, and he's the working journalist kind of guy and lower class, and um, they hit it off, and they get married. But, in fact, Loretta Young, it, with her doe eyes, is in love with him and always kind of looking at him. and Truly suited. To, yeah, Right, and this is pre-code, it isn't particularly racy but essentially harlow's uh character wants to change him she wants to turn him into a an upper class guy Mm -hmm. and he's not and so the very things that she was attracted to in him she wants to kind of change in the show notes i put a link where you can go and watch a clip from the film which is really pretty adorable where she buys him garters (laughs) to hold up his socks (laughs) and he doesn't want to wear them (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so she's trying to convince him to wear them. And I, I've heard that this scene was actually improvised and that it, it wasn't actually, they, they didn't do it exactly as scripted. And it's very, very cute. I really like the actor Robert Williams in this. He died three days after this film was released. Of, oh, wow. Oh uh, Yeah, he had uh, uh, appendicitis and he got peritonitis and died.
1: Man, people are just dying left and right in this story.
0: I know, Really. Yeah, really. Young, too. I yeah. mean, he wasn't that old. He was in his 30s. He died three days afterwards and probably would have made him much more of a star. I really like him. I like the way he talks. He's just got kind of a really 30s kind of patter. And um, he does, he's not a fast talker. He's a slow talker guy of that period. But he's just got a really interesting way about him that was different than anything I've seen before. And I think it's a shame that he wasn't around to do more films because I would have liked to see more of him. And, sorry, I've got to do this, but I really do have to give a shout-out to Halliwell Hobbs, who plays the butler in this film. He's in dozens and dozens of these films as the English butler. <laughs> the butler. The English Always. butler. He, but he's but he's actually, uh, as so many of them were, an English stage star, and he came over to Hollywood and was making some bucks there. And he just brings that uh, really dry, dry theatrical kind of whimsy. Yeah. And he's just an eccentric, but a very, very quiet background eccentric. So anyway, I highly recommend this. And and Harlow is adorable. She's so natural. That's when she's good. She's good when she's natural. She's not good when she's trying to be something. Yeah, And and that continues through the end of her career. She just really wasn't an actor. And then the next one, um, which is really, really... Key. This film, Redheaded Woman, is key not only in Harlow's career, it is key in, I think, the interstitial period between the roaring 20s and flapperdom and moving into the Depression era working gal persona.
1: In this one, she's a really sort of unlikely protagonist, I guess I would say.
0: She's a redheaded, which is interesting because she dyes her platinum locks red, mm-hmm. and she's a working girl. She works in a in a store, yeah. essentially. Oh no, she works as a secretary. Yeah. Not even a secretary, a clerk in an office. That's right. Right, but she's ambitious,
1: and she doesn't have. I said sexually loose, but I should say more. She's liberated. Um, Well, she's, and she's just like, it's a commodity like anything else for her, so she uses it to get what she wants because she's so ambitious, and so she plays the seduction game. She's at times shrill, or, and at other times, just like really in your face and not coy in any way. Well, I guess she is coy, but she doesn't...
0: Um, But she's coy on purpose, (laughs) if you will.
1: Right. (laughs) She's coy in the seductive sense and not coy in the, like, she doesn't hide her feelings at all. She's... I think she could be very annoying to a viewer, basically, but she really walks a fine line. Where I was kind of impressed that they let her. Be I wanted the her to get what she the wanted. screen. Yeah. I
0: mean, I know she broke up. The, the 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 lead male is somebody you probably have never heard of. His name is Chester Morris, who I've seen in a number of films, and I really like Chester Morris. He really is a '30s man. He's the '30s kind of man. He's like Grant, you know, the guy who is going to be grandpa in my my age. And he's like, he's kind of like bullish, bullheaded, and he's got it's um, this really amazing profile is really kind of like straight nose profile and he's but yet he's absolute putty in the hands of any woman and harlow knows how to her character knows how to work this Mm -hmm. and so this is one where she is blatantly sexual blatantly using her body in every way possible showing her leg uh showing her whatever she needs to show and shifting on a dime from being a an angry shrike to being a a little girl. That's, Billy, yeah. Yeah, that's right. She uses
1: baby talk a lot in this one that
0: I forgot. It's yeah. very funny. And she his name is Bill. And I don't know how you get three syllables out of Bill. I can't do it. Yeah, Bill. Oh, Bill. It's so funny. And she does. She, this is where it's just so funny. No, she's just doing it. She's not drawing on any technique or anything like that. And I swear, isn't John Wayne in this movie? He's one of the young guys in the office that she sleeps with in the back in the in the bathroom. No, that's a different movie. Oh, okay,
1: that's a different movie where she's also ladder climbing. Oh, um, okay,
0: okay, I got confused. Yeah, <laughs> but,
1: but that one's also good. But yeah, this one it really surprised me. Basically, it was in a collection of um, pre code movies that you know yes. got censored and whatnot. Um, and it just it surprised me that there was you know like a male director casting whatever uh, production that decided to put that at the forefront and then didn't at the end of the movie it doesn't like judge her oh morally. by the way we are
0: going to spoil these movies if we need to yeah so if you if you're going to watch this movie which is really great go watch these films and then come back because we're going to kind of tell you what's going to happen if we need to and we do need to
1: yeah we're going to spoil them
0: okay
1: um but yeah, they don't cast any moral judgment on her. It wasn't like in a postcode movie she'd be cast out on the street at the end. But well, she'd be dead. In a modern day exactly. In a modern day movie she'd be
0: the annoying bitch or whatever. Um, but in this one you're on her yeah. side. I mean, she's what else has she got? She's got no education, she has no opportunities. So you kind of understand it and, and she she's not malicious, she's just for a force on of nature. Task. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's on task. So basically she breaks up the happy marriage. Like the that's her, like engagement. that. Yo, know, that's like her fault, mm-hmm. right? Not his fault, of course. Yeah, and no, he was just weak. Yeah, he's just weak because men are that way, and uh, uh, according to Hollywood, anyway, yeah. and have no responsibility. But um, anyway, she she marries him, and of course, it's you know, it's a complete mismatch. That's right. The famous person. In this was not John Wayne. It's Charles Boyer. And what else do we need to say about the movie other than at the end? Not much, I don't think. So she just keeps going from strength to strength until finally she meets the man of her dreams, the perfect man for her, which is the chauffeur, Charles Boyer. And they're having a a lovely little uh, fun on the side and she gets caught. And uh, kicked out on her keister and goes off and is supposedly ruined. But in the end, we see her in, uh, riding happily in the back of a car with a, older, stout man of great wealth, obviously, who they've just come from the horse races with the thoroughbred horse that he bought her. And they're riding along and she's got her jewels and her furs. And who's driving the, the, the limousine but? Charles Boyer. Charles Boyer.
1: And so she gets exactly what she wants at the end. And she, the cycle continues, but it seems to be like,
0: it's like her symbiotic uh, way of getting along. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's how she... And so this is sex with the quid pro quo. Jean Harlow had a lot of female fans. I mean, I think the men found her sexy, men found her interesting, and I think that even though she was into trading sex as a quid pro quo uh, in this film, I don't. It wasn't threatening. She's she she gave what she promised, and I think that's part of it, right? It's like an honest transaction.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: And and on the other hand, I think women liked her because she. Got what she wanted. She figured it out. And she did it even though she didn't have a high place in society. She didn't have a lot of education. But she didn't have to just be the trotting around little secretary.
1: Yeah. And she never apologizes for herself in, I think, any movie. Uh, yeah, yeah. And she also, yeah, just embodies and really is infused with, like, a lack of puritanical guilt.
0: Right. And, and, that, and that really is, I think, what makes her to be determined to be a sex symbol apparently i don't find her particularly sexy myself um not, like marilyn monroe i mean i don't know a human being who wouldn't say when she chose to to turn it on yeah that she could create that attraction the way michael Chekhov, her you know, drama coach said you know you you have the emanation and that's what people want And i, I totally see that but i don't feel that about jean i just think she's kind of fun and sometimes she's when she's being natural she's great and when she isn't I'm not surprised that she's not hanging on as an icon forever.
1: Yeah, me neither. She doesn't seem otherworldly in the same way.
0: Right, right. And that very same year, though, again, she makes another amazing, for the time, amazingly successful film called Red Dust. Now, this is an interesting one. This is the, one, the first one she does with uh, Clark Gable. And they're a, a great duo, though at the same time, I see them as being great interchanging off each other. But I don't, I don't really... Th- I don't buy their attraction.
1: Yes, yeah, so in this movie, they pair opposite each other. It's set in... The movie's set in Vietnam in a colonial time, and Gable is the overseer of a rubber plantation, and uh, Harlow just is rolling through like she does, hooking up, getting along. And uh, I agree. I think that part of it is that between Gable and Harlow, there's just... they They have... You can feel the relationship, right? So they have that platonic, Mm -hmm. uh, really companionable, um, synced vibe. So their repartee is really good. But also, I think the themes of the movie are kind of, even though they, they talk a lot about like sexual repression or there's no women around or whatever, and that's very much there. I think that the themes, like the deep theme of the movie is about finding your place and how you should live. And so I think that, like, the two of them mesh well and that they're just suited to live together.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, Gable, Gable's character, uh, the backstory is that he comes, he's supposed to be English. Of course, he doesn't speak with an English accent, so whatever. And he's uh, from a fairly privileged background. And uh, a couple comes rolling through. The man is going to be his assistant or his surveyor or something like that, an engineer for his plantation he's not rough and tumble like gable is he can't yeah.
1: handle the climate and stuff he's kind of
0: and he's totally uh, idolizes gable yeah. he's supposedly younger man he doesn't look that much younger but i guess he is mm-hmm. and he's married to mary astor who you would know from the maltese falcon the woman but a younger mary astor here
1: yeah and she's beautiful and she's the ideal high class sort of um She's clearly supposed to be intelligent, but she's also kind of like ooh, like yuck, ooh, and uh, and he's like yeah, Yeah. Gable,
0: yeah, and then at the same time. Uh, Jean Harlow is stuck there because uh, the monsoons, the rains came. So this is actually like a lighter version of Rain. If you've seen yeah. that with uh, Joan Crawford, and I was
1: thinking about that too when we watched it. Yeah,
0: and and Harlow is like the Sadie Thompson character, who's basically the pro. She's a prostitute, mm-hmm. is what she is, and she travels around, and, and she and Gable have hooked up several times, and she is kind of supposedly in love with Gable. But this, char- the the beauty of this her character is that she has a perspective. First of all, she's honest about who she is and what she is. So when Gable starts going after the this other high class woman who's married and is giving her not he's more than giving her the eye, he's basically trying to back her into a corner and and have his way with her. And of course, the the hint is that although she's kind of no no no, it's really yes 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 because she's really attracted. And I have to say Maybe it's because I'm from an older generation. I mean,
1: Gable is Gable attractive is, in this he's, movie. He's
0: flipping hot, man. Yeah. He's very manly. Yeah, he really is. Like you know, that chest, those shoulders. You know that those eyes. Pretty
1: face, yeah. Yeah, he's
0: pretty, and, and he's this is the movie where he is the most beautiful. Mm-hmm. He's right into the, the the richness of his manhood, and even a few years later, the depredate. You can just see a little bit of depredation, a little bit of degradation in his look. Just a little bit. Still good looking, but just a little bit. Here he's he's perfect. I think. Yeah, I agree. So, so anyways, like, I mean, I wouldn't want to be backed into the corner. I wouldn't want somebody pursuing me like him. I think I'd be scared of him. But at the same time, in a movie, it's, like, kind of hot.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's also, it's just the language. It's the cultural language, right? Yeah, so, right, right. So you could take it for what it is. Yeah, um, exactly. And, yeah, so clearly we have a lot of to say about this movie. And, like, maybe I didn't convey to you at the time, but I did really enjoy it. And I had a lot of thoughts and feelings about it, especially because it's pretty damn racist. And... Uh, <laughs> It is and, and sexist, you know, but yeah. um, but at the same time, I don't know. Parts it was just like very lively and
0: interesting and good. The, the the dialogue is actually quite good, especially this is to me the best one for Harlow in the terms of the snappy dialogue. She she is not cast as a shrieking maniac. Which almost in every film after this, where where it's where it's supposed to be screwball comedy, she's like just angry and flip flapping around and spewing out lines, and the lines are still good, but there is no modulation. And in this film, there's a lot of modulation. She can go from being angry, she can go to being cute, being wry, being judgmental, and she's watching and she sees what Gable's doing, and she's making these offhand comments about uh, loyalty and morality and things like that because even though she sells sex for money. She's honest. She's honest about it. And with Gable, she doesn't because she loves him. And so when it becomes, the currency becomes emotion, she doesn't sell it anymore. So she's not trying to be with him in order to get a ring, in order to get money, in order to get anything. She just wants to be with him because she, she loves him.
1: Yeah, I like her character a lot in this. She just She's very even keel, mm-hmm. and she's a little bit wry with her you know free with her comments and stuff like that so
0: she's a little bold but she's not yeah and she fit like you were saying she fits in in this atmosphere and the mary astor character does not and the plan then uh, that's clear is that gable will give up his plantation and go back and live with astor in the the husband
1: conveniently dead in an accident or something like
0: that. and that's the part they don't really gable doesn't seem to answer to me enough for putting this man in harm's way on purpose, right? And uh, in the end, he, you know, the husband does survive and doesn't get killed. But yeah,
1: and he and his wife decide to go, and
0: because she can't handle it, <laughs> right? Essentially, but there is a very famous scene in this film, very famous, where and apparently it was very titillating at the time, which mm. I it cracks me up, is where they they have a they have a washing station where there's a big barrel of water where you're supposed to dip it out and you pour it over yourself and you kind of so basically you always take a sponge bath kind of or you know well she decides she wants a full on washing so she gets naked and she gets in the barrel and she's got her hair all up and she's like in the barrel washing you can see nothing ex- from, except from the neck up you see nothing but it was the idea that she's naked <laughs> in that barrel right. and Gable goes over and talks to her so so ostensibly he actually could see down into the barrel and see what's in there (laughs) and 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 that was just considered to be like a wow moment so
1: racy yeah so
0: racy (laughs) And it was fun it was very fun and she was funny and she had little crack you know crackling comments to make sure he dunks her in the water and and he dunks her in the water so so just quite
1: mixed reviews on this movie it's just it's one of those colonial set exotic quote-unquote movies uh and the you know native people are just props and there's there's one character uh, oh my god <laughs> this guy <laughs> it's like it's he's, almost an, he's like, an asian
0: actor first of all he's actually yeah. an asian actor and he's playing an asian obviously mm-hmm. and he's a servant he's mm-hmm. a, the cook right right
1: uh and i mean for me i was like i was like this is like in breakfast at tiffany's yes. you know uh, Yeah. obviously that was a white actor doing yellow face so it's a little different but It was still like one of those just like out of place just like in your face sort of like racist caricature moments um and then somehow the actor is actually like funny i feel like the actor that plays that role in the in red dust like it kind of shines through and he's actually kind of funny he is funny i mean i
0: laughed he was funny but i wasn't laughing at the stereotype i was laughing at his depiction and his craft Mm -hmm. in taking something and making it funny yeah you know and uh, it wasn't funny all the time, um, but yeah, I, so I didn't appreciate the the intent behind the way they depicted this Asian the intended character. Intended humor, yeah. yeah. But you know, he took it and he did something with it, yeah, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. So I, I, I uh, there, there are moments there where he was able to shine. So anyway, I, I actually do recommend it if you can handle that. Um, I, I mean, the, the racism was ca- was. Fairly casual racism. I mean, it was pervasive because they were in colonial uh, times, as you said. Um, but it, it isn't like, yeah, it's, that I remember. Well, it's a
1: reflection of the sort of everyday perception and reality, right? And right. Not not hatred, not, not, ha- not
0: hatred or anything like that. Same thing with women. I mean, it's just the casual sexism. It's just it's just yeah. woven into it. It, it. It's it's the air they breathe. It isn't toward women specifically. And there are some films that do do that, right? Uh, so anyway, Red Dust was. Was really huge. It was um, it 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 really. I think it marked the spike and pinnacle in terms of Harlow's fame and the, and films that really hit the public. She continued to be successful, but I I think that was the one that just really got her up to the top. She did another film with Gable right after this called Hold Your Man, which I haven't mm. seen and I haven't heard like it's particularly good. But then comes the mega hit and this is not just her film but it's called dinner at eight in 1933
1: so everybody we had so much to say about gene harlow that this is now a two-part series and we'll be back at you with um maybe gene harlow's biggest
0: hit yet in the next episode if you want to get in touch with us shoot us out an email to Foiblespodcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you thanks for listening Crab cheese cheese sandwich Grab-